Today on Motley Fool Money, a look at pandemic stocks and a surprising CEO change. That and more coming up right now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Tim Byers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Caffeinated up and ready to go. Or maybe I need a little bit more caffeine. Can't speak. Get some more caffeine. Uh, (laughs) We're going to start with Zoom video because, look, it's March 1st. I I know for everyone, the the pandemic starts at a different time, probably. Um, As an investor, I think of the I timestamped the start of the pandemic as March of 2020. Uh, Zoom Zoom video is as big a pandemic stock, hundred percent, as exists out there. And we'll get to the group in a second. But I I am curious to get your thoughts on the fiscal year they just wrapped up. It was interesting to me to see that, and we've seen this a lot over the last six months or so. They came out with their fourth quarter earnings report after the closing bell yesterday. The headline is about the guidance. And after hours, the stock was down somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 8%. Um, as of the market open this morning, it's up almost 1% uh, as, as people had more time to digest it. Um, and uh, just in terms of the year they just wrapped up, what stands out to you? Because the the there are a lot of numbers to digest, but the one that stood out to me was the customers they have paying $100,000 or more, and the growth in that category seems pretty impressive. Hey, up 66%. I mean, like, okay, I think that's pretty good. You know, I mean, pretty good, 66%. Yeah, agreed, Chris. Um, I know we're being a little bit snarky here, but let's just hit some of the numbers overall. So, year-end number of customers, over $100,000. So, big customers, that was up 66% year over year. Total revenue for the year came in at, it's just about $4.1 billion. Um, we'll call it four zero nine nine point nine million. but that was up 55% year over year. Um, overall, the uh, income from operations up 61% year over year. I mean, these are really strong numbers. I think if you wanted to fixate, you could look at the fourth quarter because that's a hard year over year comparison. So, for example, fourth quarter total revenue up 21%, far different, right? Much slower growth. Uh, non gap income from operations up 16% in the fourth quarter. Uh, so, there was some. You know, fourth quarter gap income from operations that was down two percent year over year. So there are some things that you could look at it and go, mm, I don't know, growth slowing here. But overall, Chris, what an outstanding year for an outstanding company. And I'll say this: let's not forget this is one of the most efficient companies out there in terms of cloud. It, this is a profitable cloud company that generates excellent margins, almost 26% operating margins. That's a staggering number. If you think about the number of companies we talk, particularly the number of tech companies we talk about on this show, Chris, we're unprofitable and we're asking the question, when are they going to be profitable? You don't have to ask that with Zoom. They're profitable now. They generate huge amounts of cash flow and they're still growing at a pretty substantial rate. So the stock going from down to up today, I think there's a realization 
that this is an excellent business that is trading for a pretty reasonable price. I think part of what we're seeing right now is also a recognition that, and, and I want to be clear on this, Zoom Video hadn't given any guidance. Right. The, the, the quote-unquote <laughs> right. disappointing guidance is a function of the fact that they hadn't given any guidance when they came out with their guidance for the full year. A group of analysts on Wall Street said, oh, we thought it was going to be higher. Right. And I've been, I've been saying for weeks now, I don't know why any company would come out with guidance for the next 12 months that is anything other than cautious. Or shrug emoji. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and right. I, I don't know. So in terms of their, you know, so this is not Zoom video cut their guidance from three months prior. They came out with guidance for the full fiscal year. What did you think of it? Because it struck me as imminently reasonable. Oh, it was, it was very reasonable. Now, I, I will say this. Like, when you look at the, it is possible that they're being very conservative and sandbagging here. But again, to the point you just made, Chris, would you do anything differently knowing what you know that there are so many known unknowns? But let's just be clear about this. When we're looking at the year-over-year revenue growth, so for the full fiscal year, looking ahead, this is heading into fiscal 2023 for Zoom. It's between $4.53 billion and $4.55 billion. Now, at the midpoint, that's about 11% revenue growth year-over-year. So for a company that's been growing as fast as Zoom has been growing, somebody could look at that and say, like, Wow. Okay, that's an an immense slowdown. So if you if you actually believe that Zoom is going to slow to that kind of growth, then okay, I kind of get it that you you don't really want to be on this train anymore. But here's the thing: Zoom is notoriously conservative whenever it gives guidance. It is has a history of raising its guidance over time. They want to set a bar they can walk over and then slowly raise it throughout the year because, again, there are a lot of known unknowns. So to me, I look at that guidance, Chris, and I say, like, again, Eric Yuan is showing me that he's pretty smart. He's not going to set expectations that he can't easily exceed. You look at the pandemic stocks as a group, and the two that immediately get name-checked are Zoom Video and Peloton. Uh, We've seen plenty of businesses in this category over the last two years. Their stocks get run up, in some cases doubling over a short amount of time, and then coming back to earth, DocuSign, Teladoc Health, Twilio, Wix. Uh, are, Are there ones that you look at and you think they separate themselves because some of them seem like, whether they are profitable today or not, seem like sustainable businesses. Peloton, to me, um, always struck me as a business that was having its moment. I think uh, the new CEO, uh, McCarthy, Barry McCarthy, is, is as good as anyone that you would want at this point in the company's history to get the books right, to right-size the company, and get them on a sustainable path to the future. But I look at a business like DocuSign, and I just think, yeah, I, I understand why the stock did what it did. 
I even understand why it came back down to earth, but I don't see us returning to a world of pen in hand signatures. Not when DocuSign is able to make. Oh come on, the, that Chris! You don't want to so sit down on your next mortgage and go through 300 pages and have to sign them with a pen? Come on, Chris. What kind of monster are you? A, a lazy monster, a very lazy monster. Uh, but seriously, like, what what are the you know in the quote unquote pandem- pandemic stock category? What are the ones that stand out to you as like, yeah, this this thing has legs. This is not just a pandemic business. This is a sustainable business. Well, certainly, DocuSign, you know, checks those boxes. But I'll give you another one that I don't think we're talking about enough. Uh, DoorDash. I think DoorDash has for reasons that are different than some of the other pandemic stocks um, has established itself as a business that is going absolutely nowhere. And I have some, it's sort of tongue in cheek evidence here, Chris, but I think just the fact that Uber needed to issue arguably the worst of the Super Bowl ads the Uber Eats where we're eating things like toilet paper. It's such a nonsensical ad, but just the idea that Uber had to remind you that, hey, you know, over here, we do this too. We do last mile logistics. It's not just about delivering your order. DoorDash has been so far ahead in the idea of last mile logistics and delivering things other than food well before anybody else was talking about this. And please remember that DoorDash has been eliminating its competitors slowly, steadily, ruthlessly through things like using their tech, um, creating a better app. Now, to be fair, you could accuse DoorDash of some very unsavory tactics. They've had some pricing that has been very unfavorable to some of their restaurant partners, and they've accepted that criticism, and they're working on getting better at that. You could definitely hit them for that. You could also hit them for how they've treated their drivers in the past. They're working on that too. But by and large, Chris, DoorDash is so far ahead of everybody else in this space, I don't think they're going anywhere. Let me give you two numbers to sort of illustrate this. So as of today, DoorDash has 3.7, let's call it 3.8 billion dollars in cash on its balance sheet. Um, overall, it has roughly $4 billion in excess cash. That's after all of its leases, everything else it has to pay. It has no debt. So it has a huge amount of capital available to it uh, right now. In addition to that, this is a cash generator. It's an unprofitable business, but it is a cash generator because it's very smart about the way that it manages its expenses. So it has a lot of non-cash expenses that show up on its income statement that are actually not cash out the door. They accrue those expenses ahead of time, and it allows them to manage that balance sheet very, very well. I think DoorDash is formidable. I think they're the leader in last mile logistics. I think we came to depend on delivery in a way that we didn't expect during the pandemic, and now we're not going back. And that creates a real tailwind for a company that probably 
gets a little bit of disrespect, undeservedly, I think. Real quick before I let you go, Domino's Pizza, uh, their fourth quarter results kind of took a backseat to the news that CEO Rich Allison is retiring. Uh, the stock is down 7% this morning, and I get that same-store sales in the U.S. were just 1%, but you have to assume part of the drop that we're seeing is a reaction to the fact that Allison is leaving the corner office. He's been there less than four years. He had a tough act to follow uh, in Patrick Doyle, and I think it's safe to say Rich Allison is now officially a tough act to follow. When you look at how that business has grown under his leadership, how the stock has performed, uh, good luck to Russell Weiner, who's the chief operating officer, who in April becomes the CEO. Right. I mean, it's it's sad to see him go. I think part of the reason it's down as well, Chris, is year-over-year revenue um, and and due to, to some supply chain issues, which are understandable. We know this. We know there were supply chain issues for different fast casual restaurants. We've seen it before. We've seen it in, in different areas like chicken and, and Domino's. Is, they're subject to this as well. Even if Domino's wasn't giving you a lot of growth in the top line in terms of the stock, which they are, they have done that. Now, today it's down, but the stock has delivered decent returns just in terms of earnings per share, earnings growth, margin improvements. The stock itself has been solid. On top of that, they're giving you 19% average annual dividend growth. So if you're holding this stock, it's an outperformer just by virtue of how they're returning capital to shareholders. This is an efficient business. They're going to be fine. They're going to keep paying that dividend. I think this is one to hold for the long term. Domino's is an outstanding business. Um, you're right. I mean, good luck to you know uh, Russell Weiner here, but I think he's got a very good business to run, and I expect him to run it well. In honor of Fat Tuesday, is pizza your favorite heavy in fat food, or, or is there another? Because it's it's very high on my list. Well, look, I mean, yes, but we have to be very specific about this. First, if it is the so-called Hawaiian pizza, like if you're going to throw pineapple on my pizza, we're going to have a problem. We're, we're, we're going to have a, Fruit does not belong on pizza unless it's a tomato. Yes, pizza is my go-to, but it has to be like... Large slice, got to be able to fold it, has to have a little grease underneath. So when I pick it up off the paper plate, I got a little spot under there because I know I'm getting a real New York pizza. Like that is, that's a real pizza. Do not give me pineapple on my pizza. Give me a little grease, give me a little extra cheese, throw some mushrooms and pepperoni on there, and now we're talking. Our email address is podcast at fool.com. <laughs> And I'm sure we're going to get email from the pineapple people and the Chicago-style people as well. Tim Byers, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. One of the surprising winners of the pandemic is Airbnb. It went public in December 2020. And while the stock has had some wild swings, Airbnb is currently trading above where it was on opening day. But before you decide to turn your own home into a profitable rental property, it might help to know the ins and outs of being a landlord. For more, here's Robert Brokamp and Allison Southwick. 
Diversifying your income by investing in residential real estate can sound like a really great idea when you do the envelope math. For starters, over the last 10 years, according to the Case-Shiller Price Index, residential real estate prices in the U.S. have increased an average of 7.6% a year. Not too shabby. Now imagine if you invested in a rental property and you're able to get a renter to cover the mortgage payment while you accrue the equity. Okay, that sounds like a really sweet deal. Buying rental properties and becoming a landlord can be an effective way to build your wealth, but is it really the path to easy street? Joining us to talk about the pros and cons of being a landlord is Matt Argersinger. He's the lead advisor for the Motley Fool's Mogul and Real Estate Winner Services, which focus on investing in real estate. But perhaps most importantly, why we're having him even here is because he's a landlord himself. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Allison. Thanks, bro. Now, bro, you're going to kick us off here. Yes, I am. So let's just go straight into it. Uh, Allison just mentioned potential income, potential price appreciation, but actually there's tons of other benefits to investing in real estate and being a landlord. So why should someone consider doing it? With real estate, you have to remember, you get leverage in real estate in ways that you can't in the stock market. Leverage in the stock market is kind of a dirty word, but all of us or most most homeowners have you know have a mortgage, and most of the time you know you put twenty percent down to buy a house. Well, automatically you're getting five to one leverage, and so that's seven point six percent appreciation. Imagine that. Imagine taking five to one on that, or just imagine your house appreciates three percent a year. You've got essentially a five to one leverage with your mortgage. That return is more like fifteen percent if you're looking at just your initial equity in your house. But that that even doesn't even begin to talk about some of the other benefits, like tax benefits, for example. So, uh, you know, most of the time, because of depreciation, most small real estate investors, landlords, uh, will either break even or report a loss for tax purposes uh, with their with their real estate. But they're actually generating positive ca- cash flow because maybe the rents. Are greater than the expenses like utilities, maintenance, and your mortgage. But at the same time, you're deducting operating expenses and depreciation. So you're actually booking a loss for taxes, even though you're making positive cash flow, guys. So, and depending on your income bracket, you can even deduct some of those losses against your regular salary. So those are really some of the positive uh, investing benefits from being a landlord. So, yeah, let's talk about that depreciation because it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Basically, the government is giving you a break. Assuming that this thing that you own is losing value because it's getting older, but in truth, in many cases, it's actually going up in value. That's right. It's one of those uh, perplexing, paradoxical things, whatever the right word is, uh, with real estate. Uh, the the government lets you treat it as any other asset, as if it's like a owning a car or owning a you know a, a riding lawnmower. Of course, that that's going to depreciate over time. But as we know, throughout history. Homes real estate has generally appreciated if it's in the right area, uh, and it's uh, generally a place where people are moving to, or it's it's near, say, uh, a university or maybe a near tourist destination. Generally, over history, that property is going to appreciate in value. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be maintenance or renovations or things or capital investments you have to make into to maintain that property, and so that sometimes offsets the the depreciation benefit. But yes, in reality. Real estate tends to appreciate over time, yet landlords are being able to kind of offset taxes through depreciation. So it's just enormous benefit. Yeah, and I'll just stay on taxes a little bit more. You talk about the expenses. Almost all the expenses are deductible. Uh, you know, everything from the mortgage interest to the repairs that you make, replacing the appliances, even travel expenses to some that's, degree. That's right. It's all right. You could write it off. And then there's this whole thing about the, the 1031 exchange 
in which if you sell the property, even if you have a capital gain, you don't have to pay taxes on that if you roll it over to another property of equal or greater value. That's right, bro. So even at the end of the at the end of your time holding the property, you've deducted all these expenses. You sell the property, hopefully for a nice uh, profit, and then you get to take those capital gains if you choose, roll them through a ten thirty one, as you said, and defer those capital gains out into the future. Uh, and so that's kind of why it, the old adage goes: you know, a, a lot of today's billionaires, a lot of the billionaires out there in the world, are real estate investors because they recognize the idea of of investing in real estate, this really stable, appreciating asset, then being able to roll it tax-free, essentially, into new properties and kind of doing that for years and decades even and, and, and not paying taxes and building this enormous equity base in real estate. All right. So we've talked about the benefits. Maybe some people are intrigued. Where do they start? How do they start looking for a property to consider to buy and then start renting out? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll go back to my own experience really quickly. When my wife and I bought our first rental property, uh, gosh, 12 years ago now. It wasn't really a rental property. It was a duplex in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and we saw it as a way for us to move into part of the house and rent out the, the other part. And that, I think, is, is a really great way for uh, a, a younger or aspiring landlords to get started. You can you know, essentially buy a primary residence. Maybe it's a duplex, uh, or maybe it's a house that also has a, um, you know, a rental unit attached to it or separate that you can rent out to offset your mortgage costs, and uh, that that's a great way to get started. I think if you're looking for you know where to buy real estate, it is a cliche, but location is is really such an advantage. And so I think about uh, our first property that my wife and I bought happened to be near Union Station, a few blocks away from Union Station in D.C., and so therefore we always had a lot of uh, travelers or activity going to the, that area of the city, never had a problem renting it out. Um, so I think when, when landlords, when they're looking to buy a property, think about places where there are growing populations, uh, job centers, although that's less important these days with the work from home trend, um, or maybe they're tourist destinations, places where there's sort of natural demand drivers in that market that your house is going to benefit from. It's always going to be you know, occupied because there's always going to be demand. And maybe it's always your property is going to appreciate in time because that is an area where people are moving to or where there are jobs to be had. One of the things that always occurred to me, and I know this because my parents rented out uh, a townhouse on the beach for many years back in the 80s and 90s, is that there's a bit of a hassle factor, right? So how do you handle the day-to-day of collecting rent, making repairs, finding new renters, things like that? So nowadays, it's it's a lot easier just given um, the kind you know the websites and the applications that are out there for you you know to manage your property. Um, we'll talk. I know we're going to talk about Airbnb a little bit, but my wife and I, for example, use Zillow, which uh, you know lets us market our property, um, also handles some, some transactions, and you know lets us. Uh, communicate back and forth with prospective tenants, um, so that makes things easier. You know, you kind of got your your app, um, but I also think you know being a being kind of a decent accountant is a big is a big benefit. Making sure that you're you know covering, um, keeping track of all your expenses. Um, like I said, setting aside that maintenance reserve, and being a good landlord in the sense being res- being a responsive landlord, I think is is really underrated. I mean. Uh, I, I spoke with a, a fool colleague a few months ago, and he mentioned to me that he's been renting this house in DC for a couple of years, and he hasn't had a working oven in six months. 
Oh my goodness gracious. And I said, wait a sec, why are you renting this apartment if you, you know, your landlord hasn't come fixed or replaced your oven? He's like, well, it's a, it's a great property and you know, I can't, it's, I, my rent's decent. I don't want to move. And, you know, landlord kept, keeps telling me he's going to get back to me at some point. And I'm like, that's crazy to me because if I, you know, if, if one of my tenants said our oven stopped working, I'd be there the next day trying to fix it. And if I couldn't fix it, you know, I'd probably look to replace it hopefully within a week. Um, it's, so being a responsible landlord, I think, also can really uh, you know, endear your tenants to you, make them good uh, stewards of the property, um, hope, you know, hopefully encourages them to renew when, when their lease comes to expire. So all those things that you can do to be a good landlord, a good communicator, uh, you know, can make you successful. You mentioned Airbnb. So, of course, the question is to Airbnb or not to Airbnb? I love the question, uh, bro. So <sighs> Airbnb is the ultimate double-edged sword, I think, if you're a landlord. You know, on one side, you've got this enormous network effect. You've got 150 million users. You have ex you get incredible exposure for your listing. You earn more on a, on a monthly basis by doing short-term rentals, even though the, the headaches can be a lot greater. Um, and Airbnb handles all the financial transactions with the with the guest. And and so early on, when my wife and I were doing our first pro rental property, we actually used Airbnb quite a bit. We Again, we were near Union Station. Uh, that's a big tourist destination into Washington, D.C. We had a lot of success early on renting um, our, our uh, rental out to Airbnb, and we did really well doing that. On the other side um, for Airbnb, the fees are very high for both guests and hosts. I don't know if any of you have traveled using Airbnb, but the you know what you pay you know on a nightly rate gets blown up by about 30-40% when you factor in the cleaning costs, your, your uh, guest fees or any other fees that Airbnb is charging. Um, Airbnb's customer service is also not great, and that's probably being kind. Um, any, if you do run into a serious problem with a tenant, which I have, uh, my, my wife and I have a few times, Airbnb is really not going to do much to resolve the issue. It's, it's really on you. And then I think the, the bigger long-term problem with being an Airbnb landlord is that you do have a lot of cities that are really starting to crack down on short-term rentals. Uh, so making it very difficult and costly to continue doing them. So in, in Washington, D.C., for example, you don't have to register your short-term rental unit with the city. You can only do short-term rentals out of your primary residence. So you, not, you can't have three or four properties and doing Airbnb in all of them. It can only be one, uh, you, one place, and it has to be your primary residence. And you can't rent out for more than 180 days. On top of that, D.C. Charge, DC also charges a 14.95% occupancy tax to guests for stays shorter than the, the 90 days. Um, and there are other cities that are even more strict. I think I know New York City and San Francisco and others have also uh, passed recently passed um, new re regulations against short-term rentals. So that that's taken away a lot of the advantages um, over simply renting your home or apartment long-term. And that's why my wife and I um, a couple of years ago decided to go ahead and just move to long longer-term rentals. Uh, it's just cleaner, safer, less costly. You give up a little bit, you know, on the rental gross rent side, but you end up saving a lot of hassle, headaches, and expense. You talked about having trouble with renters, and, and that was an issue my parents had. They, they had a, some folks that wouldn't leave, so they had to evict them. And then once oh they eventually, got, eventually had them evicted, of course, the place was trashed. Uh. So um, what's your, your, not your, what could be your personal experience or just your knowledge? Like How common is that, and how do you factor that into the, the economics of doing this? Right. That did, that's same, not quite that's that bad, bro, for us, but we did have a couple situations where guests booked the place. We had one guest who just moved in, didn't pay, uh, and we had to amicably find a way for them to get out without Airbnb's help. That was, that was a trick. Um, then we, we did have a situation where um, 
yes, rented the rented the house. They had a massive party. The neighbor, you know, neighbors called the police, and it was trashed. Oh uh, God, and of course, crazy. you know, that was a that was a pretty big disaster for us. We had to you know spend some money to clean it, fix some things, and the Airbnb again wasn't really too much of a help. So it's it's really just. I think Airbnb is a fascinating marketing tool. It's 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 fascinating for transactions and 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 meeting guests and getting your your listing out there. It can be tough when you when you run into challenges. And most of the time, you just have to really be ready for them. You have to set some money aside for the inevitable disaster and just be ready. Come up with a plan to to take action on your own. It's it's not it's not a good situation in a lot of cities, of course, because. It's a short-term rental because you really don't have a lease with these tenants. Evicting them or removing them can be very difficult. So what has been your biggest surprise in general uh, now that you've been doing the surprise on the upside or the downside now that you've had experience doing it? I I think it's mostly been surprising on the upside. I mean, mean, real estate has been a great market over the last 10 years and, you know, beyond what I think anyone expected to, to do coming out of the you know great financial crisis of the previous decade, and so I think the biggest surprise has just been the way the rents have have grown in a lot of big cities, uh, especially the last couple of years. It's been it's been tremendous, and so as a landlord, you know you go in with expecting a certain amount of return on your investment. You know, like I mentioned, the a good return on cost is five percent. But in reality, real estate because of its so many benefits and because you've had this huge tailwind. For um, real estate and renter rentals in a lot of markets, uh, the returns have just been out of this world. And I'm not saying that that can continue, but it really the surprise for me was really working at the Motley Fool for so long and, and knowing the benefits of of investing in the stock market. It convinced me that real estate is a very viable asset class. Uh, you know, it has so many uh, advantages and benefits, as we talked about. That um, I the surprise for me is like I wish I'd. Made real estate a bigger part of my own, you know, portfolio years ago. Final question uh, for the folks who really have become interested now in doing this: Where should they go to learn more? Sure. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't point uh, listeners to our, of course, our own website, The Motley Fool. If you go to realestateinvesting.fool.com, that's realestateinvesting.fool.com. There's great content there on how to get started uh, as a real estate investor. It also has a feed that's always updated with our most recent. Real estate investing articles. So, realestateinvesting.fool.com is a great place to start. As you said, Matt, real estate has done really well for investors lately. But I mean, it's a pretty competitive market right now, and not everyone has 20% to put down. And also, some people don't want to do plumbing. So, maybe we can convince you to come back in the future so we can talk about other options for investing in real estate. Of course, we would love to come back. Thanks, Allison. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, Jason Moser and Matt Franco will be here with some thoughts on risk management and portfolio allocation. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. tomorrow.